in order for you to live faithful and effective lives for Christ, you need courage and you need power. In order for you to be an effective and faithful witness for Jesus, you need a boldness, a kind of freedom to speak for Christ, and you need a spiritual strength that does not reside in you, from outside of you, coming to you. These early Christians that we see in the story gathering together to pray, they knew this, and they sought God for it. They sought God for courage, and they sought God for power. And we shouldn't be bashful to do that either. You're gonna, you remember in Acts chapter two and chapter, or excuse me, chapters three and four, the last two Sundays, we've covered this amazing story about this, this man, middle-aged man, who was born unable to walk. He was born crippled. He was born lame. And he, he had friends who would carry him daily to the temple and set him at the beautiful gate. And he would sit there and beg for money. And Peter and John probably noticed him from time to time sitting there. But one particular day, they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they see this man and he's begging for money. And he looks to them and asks for money. Peter and John have no money to give to him. But they give him something better. They give him a gift of healing. Wouldn't that be amazing? You're crippled, you're asking for a few bucks, and instead you get full health. It's a good deal. They raise him up, he's perfectly healed. The people at the temple were in an uproar. As you can imagine, they saw this man day after day after day, sitting there begging money for money. Some of them probably gave him money, some of them probably walked past him every single day, not giving him anything. They recognized this man. And all of a sudden, this man who they saw being carried by friends and set down day after day is walking, it says in Acts 3, and leaping and praising God. And, of course, they are stirred up. They're pretty exercised. They're pretty excited. And people start rushing toward Peter and John because this man's hanging on them. They know these two must have something to do with what happened to this guy. And the people rush toward Peter and John, and Peter sees this as an opportunity. May I see opportunities like this? They saw it as an opportunity, Peter did, to preach Jesus to this gathering crowd. And that's what he did. He didn't focus primarily on this man. He certainly diverted attention away from himself and John, and he didn't even want people fixated on the miracle itself or the sign, but he pointed them to the one that the sign pointed to, namely Jesus. When Peter preached, many more people believed in him, believed in Christ, and this caused disturbance among the Jewish religious leaders. And so the Sanhedrin and the temple guard and the Sadducees come And they arrest Peter and John. And they question him. They question Peter and John. They say, by what name are you doing these things? I'll try to stay still. When Jody gives me a haircut, she says, stay still, you can't move. Um, They question Peter and John. They said, by what name are you doing these things? By what name are you doing these things? And Peter and John, again... Preach Christ. 
The, the religious leaders threaten them severely and say, do not preach anymore in this name. Threaten them severely and let them go. And then, of course, we see what happened. Peter and John go to their friends, and with their friends, they pray for boldness and power. And verse 31 shows us that God answered, I think, in a pretty significant way. Here's what it says. And when they had prayed, so when they were done praying, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It was like a mini earthquake. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in answer to their prayers, God causes the place they were to shake with a mini earthquake and he gives them courage to speak and live for Christ. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you understand this is very relevant. We need courage, don't we, in our day? We need courage. You need courage to do what's right at work when it seems like no one else is. Or when it seems like you could get away with cutting corners. You need courage to do what's right. You need courage to confess your commitment to Jesus before family member family members, perhaps, that intimidate you. You need courage to tell a lost friend who is going to hell about Jesus. We all do. You need courage, if you're in school, to not give in to peer pressure, to not just say, well, hey, everyone else is doing it, everyone else does this, everyone else dresses like this, everyone else does these things, why can't I? You need courage. You need courage to hold on to biblical standards in your home when it seems like most other people are going another way. You need courage. And God gives these people who prayed spiritual power. And this too is relevant. We need God's power. We need his power. I once heard somebody say, the problem with many Christians is that they think anything that Christ calls us to do is possible without his help and power. All things that we are called to do. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing is nothing. Nothing of any value. Nothing that pleases him apart from him. We need his power. Power, perhaps, to deliver a gift of healing to someone like Peter did in Acts chapter 3. Power to share simply and clearly with someone about Jesus and be used by God to bring them to faith. Power to be a prophetic voice to someone or give a prophetic utterance to someone that fits just the right time and moment and occasion perfectly. Power, parents, to lead our children to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need his help. We need his power. We need courage And we need power. These Christians received both of these gifts in answer to this prayer. And so, what do we see about this prayer that receives such an earth-shaking response? Such a response where the place they were gathered was shaken, and God poured out his spirit, and they they continued to speak with boldness and gave powerful witness to Jesus. Well, What I want to do is I want to look at the prayer, seven verses, of of these people lifting up their voices to God, and I want to answer three questions. How? Why? 
excuse me, how, who, and why. How did they pray? How did these people pray? Who did they pray to, or to whom did they pray, and why did they pray? Which speaks of their motivation. What was their motivation? So first, let's jump right in. How? How did these people pray when they prayed? How did they pray? Well, they prayed together. They prayed united together. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. I love this. They're in trouble. And what do they do? They run to their friends. They're looking for friends. They're looking for the church. One thing we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Acts, and I hope we beat this drum over and over again, is that the early church was a church that was radically together. Doing life together, praying together, learning together, growing together, eating together. They were together. Should I use the other mic? Maybe. There we go. We good? They were together. The early church. The, the, the image of this rugged individual Christian on his own may be American, but it is not New Testament. And quite frankly, it's not Christian at all. We need each other. When it says they lifted up their voices to God together, I find that interesting. I don't know if this was a prayer that they learned together, perhaps. Like this is something that they learned to recite together. And so they literally lifted their voices together, all in unison. Or perhaps one person started, somebody else continued, someone else continued. Regardless of how this chorus was lifted up to God, one thing we know for sure, we see serious unity here. Serious unity. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translation puts it this way. They lifted their voices to God, these three words, with one accord. With one accord. Which means with one mind, one heart, one passion, one impulse. They lifted their voices together to God with one impulse. They were so in sync together. They were one in heart and mind. Last month, our memory text was Romans 15. And verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15, I love it. It says that the church or a church or a group of people can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one voice. Same idea. Together, one impulse, one passion. It's so much more than just being a bunch of nice people, right? You ever heard the phrase, Iowa nice? We're a bunch of Iowa nice people. It's much different than that. It's, it goes way beyond being Iowa nice. That's what, that's what people from outside Iowa call people from inside Iowa. It's this Iowa nice thing, all right? It goes way beyond being nice and being generally agreeable and easy to get along with. That's good. I want to be that kind of person. But I want to be someone who is united in my heart, in my pers- purpose, passion, my mind, my impulse, 
with my brothers and sisters much more than I just want to be known as a nice guy. Psalm 133 alludes to something far deeper that God stamps his approval on. Let me read Psalm 133 in its entirety. It's not very long. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Everything and whoa, that is strange. What is that all about? Well, the, the ceremony, when a priest was appointed to be high priest, they would be anointed with oil. And it showed that they, they had God's stamp of approval and that they had God's blessing. And they would pour oil over their head and it would run down their head on their beard, on their collars. It wasn't just a little drop. It wasn't just a little swipe across the forehead. They poured oil over their head. Going on, it says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Listen to this. For there, where? Where God's people dwell together in unity. There, the Lord has commanded his blessing. Life forevermore. Clearly, God commanded his blessing with earth-shaking confirmation when these believers prayed together. So how did they pray? They prayed for courage and boldness and power together with one passion, one heart and mind, one impulse in complete unity. And I just want you guys to know, if we want to be like this, we will have to go against the grain. You know, we have never, people in in today's world have never been more connected, right, with these things. Hundreds of people, thousands of people, many you've never even met, but they're friends in some way, right? We've never been more connected than we are now. And yet, people have never, at a deeper level, much more profound level, we've never been more disconnected. I might be overstating that. It just seems we've, we are so disconnected from heart to heart, one passion, one mind, one heart, one impulse with people. We will have to go against the grain. We will have to be deliberate about finding our friends and lifting up our voices together. And when we're in trouble, not running to Facebook first and letting everyone else know, unless you're asking for prayer. All right, just a little side note. That was extra credit, okay? Um, So how do they pray? They prayed together in unity. Together. Who did they pray to? To whom did they pray? Well, duh, God, right? Well, yes, but I find it remarkable that these believers in this prayer, it's seven verses, their prayer, their actual words are seven verses, and they take five of the seven verses to declare to God who he is. It's amazing. They take five of the seven verses to declare to God, to proclaim to God who he is, and only two verses asking him what they want him to do for them. I think that's, that could be very instructive for us in our prayers. I think oftentimes God wants to reorient our thinking even in our prayers, right? I, I know some people say prayer doesn't change anything. I don't agree with that at all. Prayer does change things. They say prayer doesn't change, prayer doesn't change circumstances, it changes you. 
Well, I do think prayer changes circumstances, but I also think prayer certainly changes us. And I can't imagine as these people begin to extol who God is and proclaim and declare his glory that their hearts weren't more aligned with God and his desires and his will. What these believers declare is that God is not just powerful. That would be an understatement. They declare that God's power is untamed, undomesticated, and wild. And when I say wild, you're like, hey, wait, is that, is that true? I don't mean wild in that it's out of God's control. It's not out of his control, but it's out of my control. And it's out of your control. And it was out of these people's control. They didn't have God in their back pocket. Listen to how they speak to God. They pray to a God they believe is sovereign. Totally sovereign. Which, putting totally before sovereign may be kind of just restating the same thing. But I know there are different views on sovereignty and we would all like our views and like to think that our views line up with the view of these Christians in Acts chapter 4. So what I want to do is I want to see how did these Christians view God as sovereign and how did that impact their prayer? Well, it starts with how they address him and then in describing his actions. First, look at how they address God in in verse 24. The first words of their address to God are these words, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Now, the, the, the Greek word that's translated Sovereign Lord is only one word. In fact, the translators probably just added sovereign before Lord. It, it could just be Lord. And I think the NASB says just, it just says Lord. ESV, NIV, New King James all add sovereign before it. And I think, I think for good reason. It's a Greek word that's only used 10 times in the New Testament. It's not used very often. The, the, there's a word that's used almost exclusively when speaking about God as Lord in the New Testament. It's not this word. The word that is translated sovereign Lord in the Greek, is this word despotes. Does that sound like a, a word that you know? It's where we get our English word despot. Someone who rules with de- despotic power. Someone who has absolute, total, universal power, and we usually use it negatively. Despot in and of itself is not a negative word, but we think of it negatively because we usually assign that title to someone who uses their power to do cruel and oppressive things to people under them. But when it's used of God, it means that he is the ruler with universal power and universal ownership. And we see this as we read on when the believers in their prayer describe God's actions. They say, Sovereign Lord, you are the one who made everything. Verse 24 goes on to say, Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He is the sovereign ruler and owner of all things because he made all things. Perhaps the most radical verse in all the Bible 
you might be surprised when I say what it is. It's a verse that is almost constantly assaulted in our secular society. Is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created everything. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is, was, was the instrument or was, the, was the, um, the hand of God creating all things. It says all things were created through him and all things were created for him. David knew this well when he wrote Psalm 24. Verse 1, it says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is God's. And everything in it belongs to him. The world and all who dwell therein. The world, so this, this world we live in, and every single person who dwells on the world in the world belongs to God. Then it says this, for he has founded it. So it grounds it in the fact that he made everything. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Therefore, Sovereignty means that all things are at God's disposal to do as he pleases. To do as he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this. Why do the nations say, where is their God? What's our response? Hopefully it's the same as the psalmist. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But in this prayer, they declare not on, his sovereignty not only because he made everything, but also because he is active in history to carry out his plan and purposes. Verses 25 and 26 is a, is a quotation from Psalm 2, and it says this, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then this is applied to Jesus and how the kings and rulers, the Jews and Gentiles, all conspired together against Christ to hang him on a cross, to viciously murder him without cause. And yet these Christians, in their prayer, they affirm that God was actually using the evil acts of these men to carry out his plan. I want you to see this. This is really important. Verses 27 and 28. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that he is always working out his plan. He's always working out his plan in the earth. These evil men really did conspire against Jesus. They really did. They hated him. They wanted to silence him. More than that, they wanted to kill him. And they did. And yet, 
these believers affirmed, and yet they did what you had already planned and predetermined to take place. When people, when, when I, when people want to know my view of sovereignty, I don't typically go to Job or Joseph, though I certainly could. Those are great stories that show God is sovereign. I go here to the crucifixion of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And here's why. At the one place in all the Bible when it seems like God is most out of control, it shows, uh-uh, he's perfectly in control. He is perfectly working out his plan. He is not out of control. And what comfort for us as his people when it seems like our lives are whirling and they're out of control to know, no, they're not out of control. God, I trust you. I put my hope in you. I hold on to you. You are good and you're working out your purpose and plan in and through my life as well. Now, some hear this and ask, if God is sovereign as you are describing it, Josh, and hopefully, hopefully I'm describing it accurately according to Acts 4, if God is sovereign in this way, why would anyone pray? Why would I pray? God's going to work out his purposes and plans. Why? And I, I get that. I, I understand the tension Right? If God is sovereign and yet we are responsible, God is sovereign, working out his plan, in control, perfectly, and yet we are responsible to live and to be obedient and to trust and to pray. I, I get that. But I want to offer three reasons this morning why we pray, why prayer matters. And the first one might sound kind of trite, but here we go. All right? We pray because God commands us to. Is that enough? God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. Pray without ceasing. Pray for one another. All these commands throughout the Bible, seek my face. You will find me when you seek with all your heart. He commands us to pray to him. And these believers did. God answered them. And we see all throughout the Bible, people praying and God answering. And you have your stories of praying and God answering. He commands us to pray. My second reason why we pray, even though God is, my second reason why we pray, though God is perfectly sovereign, is this. Why would we pray if he's not? The only things I want God to do he has to be sovereign in order to do. Let me ask you a question. You've prayed this way. I know you have. Have you ever, I'm going to ask though, all right? But you have, I know you have. You've all prayed. Lord, I pray, open their heart. Turn this person back to you. Change their heart, God. Invade their lives and change their thinking. And we pray like that, don't we? We should. The Bible tells us to. 
Only a sovereign God can answer a prayer like that. I was praying that way yesterday. I pray that way often. I pray for my, my own heart. I pray for your hearts. I pray for my children's hearts, my wife. We pray this way and we believe that God is actually able to do it. So, so I, I, I turn that question around and say, why would we pray if he's not sovereign? Third, third reason. And I, I love to think about this. God delights to do his work and carry out his purposes through answered prayer. Through answered prayer. This is one massive theme in the Bible. I'm not saying it's like the main theme. It's a big theme, though. A big theme in the Bible is God doing his work through his praying people. So, these believers prayed for courage and power to a God who is sovereign with unlimited power, who actually could do the things they were asking him to do. But they affirmed that about him. They prayed to a God who is working out his own purpose and, to, and loves to do so through answered prayer. Third question, why? Why did these people pray? What was their motivation? I'm deeply challenged by this. Their motivation was God's glory and God's purpose over and above their comfort. Think about our prayer lives. And I've thought a lot about this over the past week. How much of our prayers are coming to God for the sake of his name, that he would extend his kingdom and, and, and save and deliver people for his own name? And how much of our prayers are, oh God, help me. Deliver me. Give me, come protect me. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. I want, want you to know that there's nothing wrong with that prayer. I just find it instructive. That's not how these people prayed. There's nothing wrong with asking God to deliver us and to help us and to protect us. There's nothing wrong with that. The Psalms are full of those kinds of petitions. And the Psalms are a prayer book for us. Right? Think of Psalm 91, about dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, abiding in God's shadow, Right, being comforted. He is our shelter, our refuge, our fortress. We should come to him that way. But I find it fascinating and quite convicting that protection was not the priority for these Christians. They were motivated more by the extension of God's kingdom and his purpose, Christ's mission, the spread of the gospel, than for their own comfort, for their own safety, for their own well-being. Look at verses 29 and 30. This is the end of their prayer. It says, and now, Lord, look at their threats. They say, take note of their threats toward us. Take note of it, Father, and grant to your servants, 
to be perfectly protected from all... Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Okay, sorry. It doesn't say that. Are you not looking at your Bibles? Okay. And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So after they come together with one mind, one heart, one impulse, totally unified and approach a sovereign God with universal power and ownership over all things, then they make their simple request. They make a simple request. Lord, you know what the request is? I think. Lord, give us courage so we don't chicken out and hide out and be silent about Jesus. Is it possible? Is it possible that they were fighting fear? Certainly. Probably more than possible. Right? right? What, what is, the, what is the, the, the most oft-repeated promise in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Why is that there? Because we're chickens sometimes. And we need that promise. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Do not fear. I will be with you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And they asked God not only that he would give them courage so they wouldn't be chickens and chicken out and fearful and hide, but they also asked that he would stretch out his hand and show off his power. Evidently, their biggest concern was that they would be tempted to be fearful and not speak openly and clearly about Jesus anymore. And that's the idea that's in mind here about boldness. It is, it, the idea of boldness is speaking with unreservedness and cheerful courage and unambiguous language and not obscuring things, but openly declaring who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Is this a concern you have? Is this your concern? Are you concerned that you, at times, are silent about Jesus, regardless of whatever excuse you may have, but at the bottom of it all, it's because you are fearful of what others will say, of how you might be rejected, of what it might cost or mean? I mean, imagine Peter and John go to their friends. Now, Peter and John... They might have been like, man, we're full of the Spirit. And, but they share with their friends. And I could imagine some of their friends thinking, gosh, we have young children and businesses. And maybe we should just, maybe we should just kind of huddle together and, and, and just kind of be a little more quiet and a little more subversive in our approach. And Is this a concern you have? It's a concern I have for me. For myself. Has prayer become a means of getting more and more comforts for me? Or is it a means of God being glorified and I am pursuing Him that His purposes would be furthered in and through me and in and through us as a church? John Piper said, I thought this was so good. The number one reason 
why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. That speaks, doesn't it? Prayer is meant to be a wartime walkie-talkie calling for reinforcements, calling for help, and we turn it into a we can turn it into a domestic intercom. We're sitting in the basement, we push the button. Can you bring it to put another pillow down, please? Right? And this it's because we're to see our lives as adventurous with Christ, right? We're 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 on front line, we're in a in a battle and we're on the front lines, and, and if we see ourselves in this way, it will change our prayers. I'm reading The Hobbit to Silas right now. And um in the evenings and read 20, 30 minutes. And very, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie, very early in the book, Bilbo and the dwarves and Gandalf run into trouble with the trolls and with the goblins. By the way, trolls and goblins aren't real. I just want to let you guys know. Okay, it's, just, it's, it's a fiction book, okay? Um, but they run into trouble very early in the book. And Bilbo thinks and says something a few different times. And I can totally relate with him. He, he's, he's being, I think he got picked up by the trolls and he's being carried, he's going to be burning fi- burn in their fire and whatever. And he says, oh, I can't remember if this was in his mind or out loud. Oh, I wish that was it. I was in my hobbit hole, sitting in my armchair, next to my fire, with a cup of tea. When I feel the battle raging, I can think the same thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with relaxing with a cup of tea. I mean, coffee would be much better, but um, I don't like tea. But um, most mornings, I get up early when it's still dark. I turn on a lamp. I make a cup, nice, strong cup of coffee. I sit on a couch. I open my Bible. I love it. It's nice and comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's when I begin to think, you know what? All of life should be like this. Doggone it. I can think of some other things to make life even more comfortable for me right now. An ottoman would be nice. You know, a wood-burning fireplace would be great. I mean, I would love all of those things. We can begin to think that way. And we lose this flavor of that we are in a battle. Life is war. It's not meant to be lazy boy Christian Christianity. It's not what it is. Certainly wasn't for New Testament Christians. It's not going to be that way until the new heavens and new earth. And then it'll be that way forever. And if we can have our perspective changed, we'll do a lot better at aligning ourselves with God's purposes rather than thinking about how life can be better and more comfortable for me. Now, perhaps Timothy thought the same thing. Timothy was a young man. He was a protege of Paul. And he was apparently a man given to fear at times. Paul had to remind him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit not of fear. Some translations put timidity. Not a timid spirit, but of power and love and self-control. These Christians fought fear with prayer 
for boldness and power. How do we fight fear? With prayer. Hopefully from this day forward, with prayer. For boldness, for courage, and for power. I pray God would grant us to speak with all boldness as well. That's my prayer from this. My prayer is that that we would be filled with the Spirit and we would be given this kind of courage and that God would grant us powerful signs even accompanying our witness for Christ, a cheerful courage, a freedom, an unreservedness to speak without ambiguity, without obscuring language. And that's where it's challenging. We can be totally committed to Jesus up here, and yet when we're talking to someone face-to-face, we, they say, you really believe in eternal hell? And it's like, well, I mean, well, let me explain. And by the end of three-minute explanation with lots of caveats, it might sound like we really don't, even though we do. You really believe in the Genesis account? Well, Jesus, after five minutes, it's like, well, we really don't, apparently. I mean, it doesn't sound like we do. We need to speak clearly, unambiguously, is that a word, I think, um, without obscuring language. I was down at the, at the Capitol um, Thursday, I think. There was, there's a fetal heartbeat bill that passed the Senate and was brought before a, a, a House subcommittee here, a House subcommittee, and I was there at the hearing. There were lots of other people. Uh, squeezing into this room with these 21 Congress men and women. And, you know, in that setting, even people that have strong convictions, whatever it might be, in that setting, ambiguous language is common fare. That's all you get, it seems like. Politics, right? There was one woman, though, Congresswoman, And she spoke with such refreshing clarity and candor. She said things like, this is a baby made in the image of God. She said things like, it is the taking of a baby's life. You don't hear that. I turned to a guy behind me, I was like, I really like her. I like that. That's how we need to speak of Christ. That's how we need to speak of the gospel. People are dying without Jesus, going to hell. And we need to speak clearly, boldly, and pray that God, as as these believers did, God, would you also grant wonders and signs and healings to accompany as we speak. They prayed for courage. And power, and they were motivated for God's by God's mission and purpose above and beyond their safety and comfort. And I say, God, help me be like that. Well, God loved this prayer, didn't He? He loved it. They had learned well from their Master. They had learned well from Jesus when they taught Him. When they asked Jesus, "Lord, teach us to pray," and He taught them, they learned well and they prayed, and God answered. Pretty powerfully, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They asked for boldness and power, and they got the Holy Spirit, which resulted in boldness and power. 
So let me ask you, do you see your need for courage to live for Christ in this world? Do you see your need for spiritual power to be effective for his namesake? For his namesake? Well, then seek boldness and courage and power today from a God who has plenty of it to give to his weak and often fearful people. Men, some of you need courage and power to step up in your home and lead. You need it. Perhaps you need courage and power because you haven't and it's going to be awkward to start taking that role, right? You need courage and power. God calls you to be the shepherd and the priest of your family. And you need courage and power to do that. And so do I. Ask for it. Seek God for it. Today, don't wait. If that seems kind of frightening to you to to do that because you just haven't, remember these guys. They were threatened with their life. And they sought God for boldness and for power. Some here this week are going to be exposed to someone in desperate, desperate need. Maybe like the lame man who sat at the beautiful gate. And you're going to need boldness and power in order to love them and minister to them and perhaps even be used by God to raise them. Students here, this week you're going to need courage and spiritual power to live like a Christian in a world that is continually trying to get you to live very much not like a Christian. And here's the deal. The church is not meant to go along with culture. We are to be countercultural and show people a better way. And that includes kids all the way up to, from the youngest all the way up to the oldest. And so you're going to need courage and power. Mothers, you're going to need courage and power to love your children, to, to care for them, to, to, to be like a midwife, delivering them into new birth, as it were. I mean, you're going to need courage and power to do that. We need courage and power. Each one of us. God has put people in your life who don't know Christ. He's put them in your life so that you could speak Christ to them. So, what do we do? We seek him for it. We ask him for it. <clears throat> About a year ago, I was, I was reading through Acts, and I got to this, this story here again. And where they, they got together and they prayed, we just went through this prayer. I said, man, what if, what if a group of people gathered together? Or what if every Sunday... We saw it as part of our purpose together to pray for boldness, courage, and power for this upcoming week. 
and all that God has before us, all the challenges, difficulties, all of the the people we're going to interact with, courage and power. And so, why don't we? Why don't we today? Would you stand with me? Would you grab the hand of someone next to you? Or if you've got two people next to you, grab two hands, if you're able. And I'm going to pray, but I want you to pray as well. I want you to pray for the person you're holding the hand of. Father, Sovereign Lord, all things are yours.